The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Kia ora, I'm Bernard Hickey and welcome to When the Facts Change. It's brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. Kiwi Bank is committed to supporting New Zealanders' understanding of the economic issues that are shaping their lives and the future of Aotearoa. Remember to subscribe. Now, before we get into the guts of this discussion about migration, and particularly temporary migration, I want to take you back just over a year to Cromwell and introduce a young family to you. The guy's name is Geoffrey Pinlack Santos. He's 31. He's got a wife. Her name's Marjorie Aguila Santos, and they've got a seven-year-old. They lived in Cromwell, and they were on a work visa, which means they weren't permanently in New Zealand. And when the lockdown happened a year ago, the work stopped. And that meant their income stopped. Now, when the rest of us lose our jobs, we go to MST and ask for maybe a benefit and maybe some special payments to just survive. But when you're a temporary migrant, you have no right to any of those benefits. There was, however, some help, some grocery vouchers. And when Jeffrey Santos realised in early April, after a couple of weeks without work, that he couldn't afford food for his family... He asked the district council if he could get a grocery voucher. And they said no, because he didn't live in Queenstown itself. He was actually living in Cromwell, different district council. So, unfortunately, Geoffrey lied. He said he lived in Queenstown. And over the next four or five weeks, he asked for and got $1,600 worth of grocery vouchers, which kept his family alive over that time. And then a few months later... Various people worked this out, that he'd actually lied about his residency. And what happened was he was taken to court and convicted of theft. And then a few months later, the Immigration and Protection Tribunal deported him. And he's still in New Zealand and due to be deported in the next couple of months. This is a man who was trying to look after his family, couldn't get benefits in New Zealand, lied. He's now apologised for that and now he's been kicked out. This is just one example of the awful situation hundreds of thousands of New Zealanders are now in where they are vulnerable to abuse and exploitation by the employers who own them effectively through their work visas, who can force them to work longer hours than they have agreed to, to pay them effectively less than the minimum wage, all sorts of abuse that has led to many ending up in prostitution, in heavy debts, all sorts of mental health issues. It is an awful mess created by our accidentally on purpose system of migration settings and a huge increase in the number of people here on temporary work visas. The sorts of things we say that other countries like Australia do really badly, but we've done exactly the same here for our guests, more than 300,000, who've worked year after year, some as many as 15 years on temporary work visas, often starting their lives, building families. And uh, we have cut them off from those benefits. Now, between April and December, 
the government, despite repeated requests and questions from myself and others, didn't do much about it. There are now access to emergency benefits, but it's symptomatic of the way that we've treated hundreds of thousands of people living in New Zealand. Why is it that we've developed a system where we have twice as many temporary work visa holders per head of population than Australia, 10 times more than other developed economies such as Canada or the United States? Why have we developed a system where a government that was built out of the creation of a Labour Party designed to protect workers' rights has allowed ongoing enormous migration where we're not only treating a whole group of people as not second-class citizens, but actually non-people who can be exploited and abused without our system noticing much or caring much where even Immigration New Zealand says it only deals with a third of the complaints it gets, and that's for the people who are brave enough to complain. So this week, I'm going to talk to some people who've been looking at this area for years, and they've been saying we need to change these settings for a bunch of reasons. Firstly, it's not necessarily great for our economy. A lot of people talk about migration as fantastic for productivity, but that isn't always the case, and we'll look at that. And secondly, we'll look at What's actually happening on the ground with people who are being abused and who are being used by many people in, for example, the liquor retailing and in service stations, not to mention in many horticultural areas? This is a debate, of course, that's very intense right now with many people in orchards and in businesses desperate to get yet more of these temporary migrants in through the door. And of course, many people are stuck here on these temporary work visas, which continue to be extended, not able to see their families or bring their partners over. This is, from my point of view, a scandal. And this week, we're going to look at how that was created, the scale of it, and what we could do next. This is When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey on the Spinoff Podcast Network. First up, we have Julie Fry, an economist who's actually in New York, and she's worked with Peter Wilson at the NZIR to produce a report, especially for the Productivity Commission's inquiry into what they call the digital frontier. Welcome, Julie. It's great to have you on board. Tell us about the study, about temporary migration, and what you found. Okay, so we've had very big increases in temporary migration in New Zealand since about 2003. But productivity hasn't been our primary focus as that's been happening. So we've been increasing student numbers through the International Student Programme by offering students work rights, and that makes coming to New Zealand more attractive. We've been improving our relationships with other countries by engaging in reciprocal working holiday visas, and we've been welcoming people in under the recognised seasonal employer scheme to help out with labour shortfalls in the horticulture industry. So it's not surprising that we haven't seen a big productivity impact as a result of these policies that have been expanding because that was never our stated objective when we set out. What sort of scale of temporary migration did you find and what type of temporary migrants do we have? Because you mentioned students there, but there's quite a few different types. Yeah, so at the peak in 2017, we were welcoming in about 250,000 people a year. Of that, that year, about 70,000 of those were working holiday visa holders. There were a large number of people coming in under essential skills visas, which is where somebody doesn't quite meet the threshold to be given you know, a permanent resident visa under the skilled migrant category, but we still need them in industries where there are shortfalls. Um, at the peak, there were around 12,000 people coming in under the recognised seasonal employer scheme in horticulture. I don't have the numbers to hand on students, but 
you know, if you look at the numbers in terms of impact on some reports, that was a $5 billion industry before our border was closed. So very substantial numbers there as well. And there seems to be a sort of a connection between particular industries and temporary migrants. We've got tourism, a lot of people here as holidaymakers who then get some work rights. And then you've got international education where people come here as students and then they get some work rights with the hope of permanent residency. And you've got a couple of particular industries, so liquor retail, kiwi fruit, horticulture and some agriculture, where they've become quite connected and reliant on this type of migration. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you look at overall numbers, the RSC workers are a, you know, a, a small teens percentage of the total, but working holiday makers contributed a chunk to the total of people in horticulture as well. Our local workers are about half of the people that are working in horticulture. So that's, that's quite substantive in that particular industry. And those, those other ones you mentioned are large employers of um, migrant labor as well. I mean, the trick that we find when we look at the results in the literature in terms of getting a positive impact from migration is to bring in people who complement locals. So you're not looking for people who just switch out for a local person. And that's what we do on permanent migrants. We're very well versed in finding ones who have skills and experiences that New Zealanders don't have. And it would be great if we could take that kind of approach more widely instead of just going, where do we have holes? Who can, who can we fill them with? Now, when we've thought about migration and productivity in the past, the assumption has been that, of course, these migrants are going to improve our productivity. They're quite young, they're coming here with skills, perhaps they might start a new business. But can you give us some idea of what the actual research shows about the connection between migration and productivity in a country? So if you look at permanent migration, which is outside of this this group we're discussing here, for New Zealand, the results are that the net benefits are small and positive when it comes to GDP per capita. And so one of the things driving that is that migrants that come in are screened, so they tend to be younger, they're more likely to work, they're more likely to be healthy. That makes total sense. They're also more likely to be skilled because we're choosing people to come in based on their skills in our skilled migrant program. On the business front, we've tried very hard on that. It's extremely difficult to get people in under entrepreneur schemes because governments are no better at picking winners when it comes to businesses than they are at picking winners in other spaces. So, you know, success rates across across the world for these kinds of schemes tend to be in the order of 10%. We do well in a, in a space that's that's extraordinarily difficult. So that's permanent migration. But has there been any research internationally about temporary migration? There's not a lot. I mean, there was some interesting work when I was at HM Treasury in the mid-2000s. In 2004, the Bank of England looked at impacts with the accession eight countries joining or what what had happened. And there were large numbers of people joining the UK economy at that point. And they were among the first to start pointing out that temporary migrants might behave differently to permanent migrants. They might be more focused on sending remittances back home. They might not purchase durable goods, so they might have less of an impact on the local economy. And one of the things we find out with permanent migrants is Of course, they need somewhere to live, their children need to go to school, they buy goods and services, and this grows the economy, and we have this knock-on effect where that thereby creates jobs for locals. And the Bank of England's work suggested that perhaps that was less of a factor with temporary migrants. When it comes to New Zealand specifically, um, there have been a couple of studies. The first one looked at temporary migration and said, well... Overall, this was in 2013, there haven't been any negative effects on locals that we can see, which was enormously reassuring. Um, But the authors of that study said, 
but we did this during a boom, so we're not confident that this applies across the board. And then they updated that work in 2018 and went into a whole lot more detail. So they looked at different time periods, different economic conditions across those time periods. They looked at people on different visa types. They looked at impacts across different locations and all that kind of stuff. And when you break that down into those kinds of little component parts, the picture is a little bit less comforting, particularly because this is when you start to see these big gaps in our knowledge. So one of the things they weren't able to separately identify was impacts of the RSE scheme, which, you know, 12,000 people, um, quite substantial. They couldn't separately identify impacts from the working holiday scheme. And since that was introduced, that scheme has, you know, grown tenfold pre-COVID to a peak of around 70,000 people. So these are these are big numbers, and that's quite an information gap. And in the areas where they were able to find specific results, the results were quite mixed. So, for example, on students, they found some cases where international students created more jobs for locals. But if, if, if they looked at the essential skills visa program across the board, there were negative impacts on local employment. And there were some cases when the negative impacts on locals were people that you might consider to be more vulnerable, so beneficiaries in rural areas who have more limited work opportunities. Now, one thing that surprised me was the scale of the temporary migration compared to other countries and also compared to our past. So you've got a couple of great charts in your paper. I love a good chart. And it shows the number of temporary work permits per thousand of the population is actually over 50 and double what we see in Australia, and more than 20 times larger than what we saw in the United States. And that our temporary migrations increased from around 50,000 in 2013 to uh, over 80,000 in 2019. Do you think that's a surprise? And how unusual is New Zealand in having that scale of temporary workers? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a big change. You can just, you can see that looking at the graphs. I mean, the, the, the thing I would say to balance that out is there are places that don't need to give people temporary permits in order to get temporary migrants. So Britain pre Brexit. So we're not always comparing apples and oranges, but if you look at the New Zealand, Australia, Canada story, that's pretty comparable. These are big changes and. Certainly, I think it would be helpful if given, given that we've got these, you know, very small number of studies that do kind of point to pockets where there are issues. It's something that I think the Productivity Commission is right to say we need more information on because we simply don't know. And when you look at what's happened overseas, you, you can see a, a range of possible outcomes from when you get large inflows of temporary migrants and when those inflows are turned off. So, you know, we, we're now in a situation with COVID where we've lost a lot of access to temporary migrants. Some of the things that have happened overseas when that's happened is some, some places have seen more automation. Some places have seen different crops grown. Some countries have seen greater use of illegal labour. You know, we don't know which of these things are happening in New Zealand. We know anecdotally that our employers have responded with a great deal more flexibility than perhaps we might have anticipated from some of the noise at the beginning. We're seeing some great stories of places where people have, you know, changed terms and conditions and made hours more flexible. We're seeing some really creative uses of capital. So, um, uses of things like hoists, mechanical hoists. I mean, when I, when I spent my summers in Motueka picking apricots, there was a limit to how much I could hoist up and down that ladder because I'm a pretty scrawny, you know, female. But nowadays, you know, those things are happening, you know, with some mechanical assistance, which opens up the range of locals who can do things. So we're seeing 
these kinds of creative responses. We're seeing across some of the more corporate growers, we're seeing them um, making really tactical use of RSE workers who they perceive to be very reliable and compliant in the sort of essential harvest time um, and using locals and training them up and using them across the year in packhouse facilities. So that sort of complementing labour story is actually starting to happen. That is not to say that it's not really hard for anyone in the apple and pear industry right now trying to find people when students have gone back to uni. It's understandable that employers are frustrated because they've built business models relying on access to temporary labour and having it suddenly dry up is a challenge. So just pulling back now from the individual industries, could you give us a sense of the theory, if you like, of how productivity improves and why access to relatively cheap temporary workers might actually stall or block that process of improving productivity? So if you think of productivity as, like labour productivity as in a nutshell, getting more output per worker input, the obvious way to do that is to increase the capital available to your workers because that way they're more efficient. So if you think of us in the old days as, you know, writers or economic commentators and our pads and pens and what we can do now with our podcast tools and our laptops and all the rest of it, you know, technology enables us to be much more productive. And that that, that applies across the board. You know, if we are able to do things the old way, then the temptation is always to do things the old way. It's expensive to invest in capital. It's risky to invest in capital, particularly when you might need it only for sort of, you know, short times of the year, you know, whether it's planting or harvest. Now, that said, when the economics make sense, people will automate. And I, one of the things I was delighted to discover, I grew up on a tobacco farm and the first mechanical tobacco planter turned up in Hawke's Bay in, I believe it was 1911. So, if it makes sense, people will automate. But the, the, the challenge is really, if, if, you have a, if you have a simple answer that's working, then the temptation is to stick with what's working. So is that part of the picture here, where people are much more likely or willing to keep their existing system going and just pump in more labour hours? I mean, I see just, just from like personal observation, as well as the kind of reports I was seeing from the Prodcom in their industry case studies, there is a real mix across the industry and certainly corporate growers are doing what you would expect profit maximizing corporates to do in any sector. You know, they're planting different trees or planting different crops. They're spacing things out. They're examining the frontiers of, you know, robot technology. They've automated pack houses quite a lot and they're now looking at, you know, to what extent it becomes and when it becomes economic to do that in terms of picking. So there's a, there's a frontier, as the, as a, you know, talking in the report of people doing all those things you would expect. And then there are people who are just getting by. And when, you know, when you're at the getting by end of things, having access to workers who can enable you to do it the way it's always been done means you're more likely to do it the way you've always done it. Is there been a, a stepping back, a reflection on what this means for our economy or for our social system? Relatively speaking, there's been quite a bit of reflecting on the RSE scheme. There are annual surveys of employers and um, MB last year and the year before published some in-depth sociological analyses of impacts on workers, impacts on their communities back home. Those are good resources. They point us to some cracks that are beginning to show in the scheme, things like the balance of power between employees and employers and whether 
It's still paying enough for workers given rising accommodation costs and um, some unexpected negative impacts on families in the Pacific. Everyone knew we were taking away prime age you know, workers for a period. They hadn't really registered. We were also taking away parents and that that would impact family well-being. So there are some issues there. Um, one of the things people have talked about doing in response to that is sharing out um, the spaces a bit more. And of course, employers are keen to get the same people back year after year because they're more productive and they're already trained. So for me, that 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 little micro story highlights some of the tensions and trade offs that we, you know, need to be talking about in this space. What's better for one group might disadvantage another. So, in in that space, we have we have reasonable information, although very very little on economic impacts. We have some case studies of three farms where we find when we look at peace rates that um, Pacific workers tend to be more productive than locals. So your paper was part of a wider review by the Productivity Commission, and they've now recommended a full review of migration settings. So what would you like to see that review look at? Um, I'd like to see it taking a wellbeing frame. We talk about having this. It would be good to see one used here, you know, making sure that migrants are treated well and not being exploited. There's work going on in that space, which is very welcome. Thinking about how our migration settings fit with our wider objectives, including the Crown's commitments under the treaty, which I think are, as we wrote in our book, Better Lives Are Understudied, and whether we have the balance and trade-offs right in relation to students and working holidaymakers as well. I mean, on as we said in our, our earlier report, on pure productivity grounds, it's hard to make the case for the large increases we've seen in working holidaymakers and students. But again, those weren't the objectives that we set out with. You know, we were trying to attract more students, and that was very successful. We were trying to forge connections with other nations. That worked too. And when you talk about the well-being aspects, what sort of things could you look at? How could you measure them? Um, just take one example. When we when we think about migrants in terms of what productivity or GDP impact they have, we might think there's not a lot of benefit in bringing in grandparents or other family members because you know they're retired and they're less productive. If we apply a well-being lens, we could say, well, you know, this this is somebody who can help, you know, a migrant preserve their language and connections to their culture. This is someone who might be able to help with backup childcare. It gives us a richer frame. That's just one, you know, one example. You know, in the housing space, we've seen a lot of scapegoating of migrants, and I think what the the recent pandemic experience has proven is that we're quite capable of having large increases in house prices without migrants, which is not to say that increases in population from whatever source are helpful when you haven't got your supply response right. But there are some discussions in there around trade-offs and around whether a large quantity of migrants is the way to go or whether more focus on people who complement locals might generate better outcomes. Well, thank you very much. Julie Fry there, the co-author of a report for the Productivity Commission on migration, which is recommending a much wider review. She's also the co-author of a book about migration and its effect on the economy. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. And we'll be right back in a moment with Anu Kalotti to talk about migrant abuse and exploitation. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with Kiwi Bank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. 
Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Well, welcome to the spin-off studio to Anu Kalotti, who is the head of the Migrant Workers Association and has been watching closely in recent years how New Zealand has coped or not coped with the tens of thousands of extra workers, students, holidaymakers with temporary work visas and how they've been treated. Welcome in, Anu. Great to have you here. Um, Kia ora and thank you for um, allowing me to contribute. Could you give us an idea of how much of an issue exploitation and abuse of people with temporary work visas is in New Zealand? Right. So um, over the years uh, at the uh, the Migrant Workers Association, we um, have seen um, thousands of cases and we've, we've provided assistance to, to the best of our ability. But MBIE, Labour Inspectorate, uh, on record were found um, to have said that uh, they are only able to deal with about a third of the the complaints that they get from migrant workers um, where they're being exploited. And then with those complaints, they this is on record, they, they said they found exploitation everywhere they looked. Everywhere? That, that, that's what they said. They Out of those cases that they were investigating, that they found exploitation everywhere they looked. What are we talking about here with this exploitation? So what does exploitation look like? Uh, it can be anything from uh, not being given a, a written employment agreement. Uh, so in other words, um, workers are not made aware of what their minimum entitlements are uh, to uh, being made to uh, work extra hours than what they are contracted for, uh, being paid less than uh, what their contracted rate is, paid less than the legal minimum wage, uh, not being 
given their rest breaks, meal breaks, being forced to work while sick, uh, not uh, being allowed uh, paid annual leave, forced to work on public holidays and not paid or given time off in lieu, uh, made to give cash back from their wages, uh, made to pay uh, premiums for um, uh, visa support or premiums for uh, getting the job offer in the first place, threats of um, various kinds torture, psychological torture, physical abuse, uh, family members being threatened and abused in in the the workers' home countries. Uh, I mean, one of the worst cases, which I'll finish off with because this list is very long. One of the cases we've represented, uh, a female worker starts working as a a, a beautician in a salon. Uh, Her visa is tied to the employer about three months down the line, discovers she's expecting, so obviously tells her employer that she's pregnant, and the employer responds with, um, you either terminate that pregnancy or I terminate your job. And this really um, is is uh, gut-wrenching. Unfortunately, that worker went and terminated their pregnancy. So why does the employer have so much power in this relationship? Because, you know, for someone who is a citizen or a resident, they could say, oh, this isn't very good. I've I've got lots of skills. I can go and work for someone else. Why is there so much power with the employer in this situation? So we we need to sort of step back a a little bit and look at how uh, migrant workers are entering Aotearoa. Uh, a lot of them come in through the international education um, route, so they come here as students, and um, more often than not, they are studying, uh, I would say, pretty um, low-quality, almost meaningless courses that don't really provide them with good qualifications, and, and so uh, you know, it, it's an uh, entry point, So uh, and they are paying easily $20,000, $30,000 a year, that's per student, um, so in the process, that they are incurring a, a huge debt. So to, to fund the entire education uh, pathway, they are taking out debt in their home countries, you know, uh, selling uh, family uh, agricultural land or family homes. Um, so they, they come with that. And then the the pressure on them is to to get a job, to, to, to get a longer-term visa, ultimately get residence so that they can repay that debt and then they, they can have a better future here. So uh, once they, they graduate as students, the only way uh, for them to get a, a work visa is to, to get a job whereby an employer will sponsor them, meaning that uh, that work visa will be attached to that employer and the attachment is so restrictive that they will be attached to that location as well. So, for example, if uh, an employer, a business owner has three or four different restaurants in different cities, uh, a worker's visa may be tied to just one restaurant in one city. So that means, you know, that they they can't move around, even can't work in the other three restaurants owned by the same employer. So as a result, the employer is in control of the workers' situation. They control the visa. So the biggest threat is that if you don't work the extra hours, if you don't work for less money than what I have said in your contract, if you don't pay me cash back, I will report you to Immigration New Zealand and get your visa cancelled and get you deported. So this has been happening for quite some time and we've heard these reports time and again. And I've also heard calls for uh, work visas, the skilled work visas, other types of visas that are there for temporary work to be disconnected 
from the employer to be essentially attached to the um, potential migrant or the worker so that they can, for example, if they're being treated badly by one employer, move to another employer. Why hasn't the government responded or changed that system so that the power balance is redressed somewhat from the employer to the employee? Uh, Yes, you're right. This has been happening for a number of years. Uh, I mean, uh, the association has been around for a good 10 years. So we know it's been going on for at least a decade. And um, why doesn't the government or the previous governments, um, they, they don't do anything about this? I guess it's in an attempt to keep those workers in a vulnerable position. You know, you imagine if if those workers were not tied to their employer, if if they were given a more long-term open visa or if they were made permanent residents, they they will have the the confidence and and they will feel empowered to speak out against their exploitation. And we we, we will be moving towards a a workforce that, that is more aware of of their rights and is more empowered and and is likely to take action against uh, their employers and and also likely to support other workers. So, you know, we're looking at unionisation of workers in a different form here. So what I also can understand is that the Labour government, which is run by the Labour Party, why does it see temporary workers from overseas as different types of workers than uh, residents? Uh, you raise a, a very good historical point here, I guess. You're referring to um, the, the Waihi miners, the gold miners. Yeah, we, we've got wonderful, beautiful history of how uh, this Labour Party was formed. But we also know over the years the phenomena that has happened, especially in the 1990s, the, the neoliberalism taking over. That is what has mainly been responsible for the uh, the workers' rights to be diluted. And, and this is not just in New Zealand. We, we see this world over. So the, the parties who were more pro-worker are now uh, very much sort of centre parties, you know, that are maybe slightly left of centre, but mostly centre. So as a result, that they sort of have become um, more or less self-serving institutions. And as a result, we see that the power of unions has been very much diluted. And once you do that, uh, the power of workers uh, is inevitably diluted. Uh, so it's, uh, and also, I, I mean, I, I don't want to go too heavy into the, the philosophy side of things. But, you know, we, we live in a system called capitalism, where the main motive is profit, more profit, more profit, more productivity. And that does not really take into consideration the plight of the workers who are the very people who produce the material wealth for for the that model to be profitable. So I think yeah, in a very brief discussion, you know, that the, those are some of the things that are responsible for the Labour Party being the way it is it is today, not just here, in, in many other countries as well. So one of the ironies here, you mentioned productivity and profit, is that it is the Productivity Commission, which this week recommended to the government that it review its migration settings. You're in a position to recommend to the government how they could change those migration settings as part of this review. 
What changes do you think the government should make so that we treat our guests humanely? Right. So for a number of years, we have been calling upon this government and the previous ones to, um, as a minimum, the very first thing that needs to happen is to stop the practice of attaching visas to employers. I mean, that, that that's akin to modern day slavery. And, and that in, in itself, that alone will see exploitation reducing in a short space of time. Uh, the, the next thing we have been more recently calling for is to, uh, to provide some sort of meaningful and genuine pathway to residency to people who are already here. So when we say that, we are not asking for the floodgates to be opened to new migrants. What we are saying is the people who are already here, the people who already work here, uh, people who already live in our houses, drive on our roads, uh, their children go to the schools here, people who have spent five years, a decade. I even know families who've been here 15 years and, and they're, they're still on temporary visas. Allow those people to stay. You know, that they, they've contributed to this country's economy in, in, in many, many ways. These people have played by the rules. I think New Zealand uh, is kind and compassionate. And, and in the last year or two, we've, we've really built up that reputation internationally. So we, we need to live up to that and deliver. We need to let those people stay who are already here. And then uh, that would also alleviate the burden on, on some of the, um, the, the operational uh, legacy issues we have in, in institutions like Immigration New Zealand and MBIE that would uh, provide the, the much needed reprieve for those government departments to actually have a big reset and overall. So what do we say then to future people coming here on skilled work visas or as holiday makers or as students? Do we say you can come here and work for a certain period of time, say two years, but we're not guaranteeing you uh, residency. In fact, we're not even suggesting it. We're saying it's very unlikely you could get residency. How do you deal with this this issue of not over-promising, but also at the same time giving yourself the flexibility to say to people who do become absolutely essential and part of the community that they can um, apply for residency? So I think there needs to be a, a bit of a holistic approach. So I'll just quote uh, my example here. Uh, I myself and my husband, we came in as migrants 18 years ago in 2003. And we um, both our jobs were on the long term skill shortage list, an electronics engineer and a food technologist. And 18 years on, those two um, jobs are still on the long term skill shortage list. So th this whole thing of like bringing in skilled people, and then being able to train New Zealanders so that we are uh, reducing those gaps in, in, in the skills that we, it's just not worked. I mean, just taking my example, it's, it's not worked. So we need to, to reset, you know, why aren't we able to produce or train more electronics engineers, more food technologists. You know, this country is heavily reliant on food exports, you know, dairy industry, meat, and we should actually be exporting that skill out of this country rather than bringing people in, bringing food technologists in. So the, the whole thing needs to be re-looked at. Um, so I don't think it's as simple as saying that, uh, you know, to, to future um, skilled migrant workers that we can bring you in, but we, we don't 
promise that you will be here long term. Uh, I think we, we should be able to address the skill shortages with the, the number of people we have here, the, the number of skilled people we have here. We, we need to stop bringing in skilled migrants like we have done up until now. Uh, we, we, we need to have a better approach. We need to take into consideration other things in this country that um, on the surface would appear are not directly related to our migration policy, like uh, public education system, public health system. So, yeah, I think yeah, it, it's that the problem is it's much bigger than just a migration policy. So stepping back a bit, to look at New Zealand's reputation, we've gone out there over the last decade and said, come to New Zealand, we're a kind place, we'd love you to come here with your skills and work to buy an education and maybe have a chance of a permanent residency. And then we had COVID and the lockdown, where the Prime Minister talked about the core value of being kind. How did we treat people who lost their jobs, who had temporary work visas during the lockdowns? So I guess on a positive note, we uh, are possibly one of the very few countries in the world who extended the wage subsidy to temporary visa migrants. That was a good note. And more recently, the um, uh, unemployment benefits uh, have been extended uh, as an emergency to some um, temporary migrant workers as well. So uh, there are some good things in the last year. But overall, temporary migrants have almost been allowed to slip through the cracks. So with exploitation, um, you know, that's increased in, in this past year. Exploiting employers have found other novel ways of exploiting their migrants. For example, the, the wage subsidy. Many exploiting employers have claimed the subsidy but not passed it on to their migrant workers. Uh, there have been sham redundancies. There have been uh, un unfair uh, terminations. Uh, so businesses liquidate, fold up, and then, you know, phoenixing, you know, th th they go and just start up the same business in another family member's name. Are there any particular industries where this is rife? Uh, bottle shops, uh, liquor shops, it's, it's, it's rife. Uh, restaurants. Uh, our chefs have suffered a lot. Just to um, to finish, uh, you have lots of uh, friends and family um, offshore, um, as many of us do. If someone asked you, I'm thinking of coming to New Zealand on a temporary work visa and I hope I get residency, what would you say to them? Well, at the moment, they can't. I would just say, please don't, uh, because um, this is another uh, a very uh, unfair way Immigration New Zealand uh, and this government is working. Uh, no offshore visas are being processed. However, offshore visa applications are being accepted, which means that Immigration New Zealand is taking the application fee and just sitting on it, doing nothing. Uh, but we, we would like this government to uh, do a proper review and, and, and come up with robust, meaningful changes that uh, don't hurt the people who have already given so much to this country financially, socially, emotionally. And, and, and we have to be careful and mindful but that we don't mislead any more people who may be considering uh, coming here. Uh, I know a lot of people are considering other countries like Canada because last week Canada announced that they, they would be issuing 90,000 uh, permanent residence um, visas to um, students and uh, I think some workers there. Um, so yeah, pe people are looking elsewhere. 
Anu Kalotti from the um, Association of Migrant Workers. Thank you very much for coming into the spin-off for um, our podcast, When the Facts Change. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you to Anna Colotti from the Association of Migrant Workers for coming into the studio. And thanks, of course, to Julie Fry earlier and to Kiwi Bank. And remember, subscribe so you don't miss an episode of our weekly podcast, When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with Kiwi Bank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how Kiwi Bank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.